thought I'd open with the farm report uh, this morning. It's been a, a, a good month at the Parks household. All of my chickens have finally gone into production. I got my chickens late this season, so they started production late. And this month, we've gone from two or three eggs a day to 18 to 20 eggs a day. So eggs are piling up quick at our household. Uh, so that's very exciting. And the chickens, as I mentioned before, are still following me around everywhere that I go. Uh, sometimes I like to just walk out into the yard like this and let them follow me around. And, and I joke about it, and uh, my wife doesn't think it's that funny, but I do, uh, except when it's not. Because uh, they follow me around whether or not I'm prepared to feed them or give them anything. I have to be careful, like if I'm out in the driveway and they see me from the backyard, they all come streaming out of the backyard to the driveway, and I'm like, go back, I have nothing for you. And if I'm walking through the yard, they're all piling around me, and the ones that want to get my attention are running in front of me, and then they do this thing, where they run in front of you, and then they don't want to get stepped on, so they hunch down. And now I've got to sort of kick them out of the way to get through the yard. So here's what I'm thinking as I'm doing all of this. As far as these chickens are concerned, I'm the Messiah. And sometimes it's not that great. Because they're only there because of what they want from me. And sometimes that is the relationship that we have with the Messiah. We talked a little bit last week about how we're all naturally selfish, and because we're all naturally selfish, as humans, we tend to bring this selfishness to Jesus, and we naturally approach Jesus asking what we stand to gain. And because of this, it's kind of easy to reduce uh, the gospel to a salvation transaction. I'm, what am I going to get from Jesus? Well, I'm not going to go to hell. And that's something I could really get behind. I'm all in favor of not going to hell. So that's what I get from... But what about the other pieces? What about the rest of the package? What about transformation? What about discipleship? I'm still, because of who I am and how I think, I'm still wondering what's in it for me. What do I stand to gain? And the truth is, we stand to gain everything. We stand to gain everything. New life, new purpose, new identity, and transcendence. The ability to reconnect ourselves with our Creator. But, as we come to Jesus with this question, Jesus consistently asks us what we are prepared to lose. You see, we can't receive new purpose, and we can't receive new identity, and we can't receive transcendence, and we can't receive life until we're prepared to be vacated of the stuff that's already there. Until we're ready to let go. And so Jesus says, as we talked about last week, Jesus says the first step, if you're going to follow me, the first step is to deny yourself. That's the beginning place. And, and we introduced last week mission principle number four, which is disciples of Jesus are surrendered to Jesus. They let go 
of their life. They let go of their control. They let go of their grip on their treasures, and they give these to Jesus. And I will be the first to admit that that is much harder than it sounds. It is just difficult to do. And so as we read through the Gospels, as we read through the story of the life of Jesus, we find that the Gospels are littered with almost disciples. The ones that could almost bring themselves to follow Jesus. They get right up to the edge. And ultimately, they're just not at that place where they're prepared to surrender everything. And so Jesus lets them go. One of those, a uh, very famous one, is in Mark chapter 10, starting with verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and said, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Good teacher, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all of these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him, loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, this is a story, one of several stories about almost disciples. And we all understand that it's a tragic story. There's every reason to believe that this young man is sincere, that he really wants to follow Jesus. But the tragedy is he can't quite get over this threshold of self-denial. He can't quite get past the need to surrender. Now, whenever we read this story, someone is always quick to point out that this is not a universal command, that this does not apply to all of us. As a matter of fact, if you want to get a rich man talking about salvation by grace, just talk about what Jesus expects him to do with his money. All of a sudden, we're all committed to grace. The irony of this is that the more anxious we are to ensure that this instruction does not apply to us, the more likely it is that it applies to us. Because, because the operative question here is, what are you unwilling to surrender? This is what this young man lacks. This is what he's unwilling to surrender. I can buy that this is not a universal command for all believers, but why is it a command for this guy? Clearly, the, his possessions and the life that his possessions have provided for him are not on the table when it comes to surrendering to Jesus. There's no prohibition against making a good living. There's no vow of poverty required in order to follow Jesus. But if Jesus cannot ask of us anything that we have, are we in fact surrendered? 
if we're honest, I, I think we can all probably admit that there are things that we hold in reserve from Jesus that we're not completely surrendered on. I don't preach on money very often. Actually, I don't like preaching on money. I don't know a lot of preachers who do, except for the ones who make a direct uh, profit off of increased giving. I don't like preaching on money. But it's not because I shouldn't be preaching on money. Because Jesus talks about money a lot. He talks about it a lot more than I do, for sure. And so... Sometimes I get convicted and go, well, even if I'm uncomfortable with this, even if it's going to make everybody else uncomfortable, we need to talk about this because Jesus thinks it's important. And why does he think it's important? Because of all the things in our life that we're going to be reluctant to surrender, money is going to be near the top of the list. And in our culture in particular, there's another item that rivals money, and that is time. Our time and money are our most closely guarded treasures. Now, how does this impact mission principle number two, that mission is the purpose of the church? Well, when we're considering our role in fulfilling the mission of Christ, we can be relatively certain that there will always be demands on our time and our money. And we can also be certain, because of who we are, that these will be the hardest things for us to submit to. In Matthew 6, in Matthew 6, verse 19 through 21, Jesus says, Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is an uncomfortable verse. It's uncomfortable enough that we tend to start drawing lines around it and generating exceptions and coming up with the limitations we clarify this verse so much, sometimes we clarify it right out of the Bible. And here's why it makes us so uncomfortable. The time and money that we're storing up is decidedly not stored up in heaven. It is stored up in the here and now. And according to Jesus... This is what defines the disposition of my heart. Now, it's complicated because time and money become more precious to us the less that we have. It's simple supply and demand, right? The less of a supply I have, the more I feel like it's in demand. The more limited the resource, the higher a value I place on it. And so when money gets tight, we get more protective. And right now, with inflation high and gas prices high, money feels tight, and we get more protective. Perhaps even more dramatic than that, though, is as a culture, we just seem to get more and more busy 
And as we get more and more busy and have less and less time, time becomes an incredibly valuable commodity to us. See, when you're broke, there's always the possibility that more money will show up. Maybe you can work a couple extra hours or maybe you'll receive a gift. There's always the possibility of a few more dollars. When your time broke, you cannot make more time. That is a misnomer. All you can make are choices. And time is finite. And so we guard these things fiercely. Money, however, often becomes more precious the more that we have. So money gets us coming and going. And there are a number of reasons for this. I think perhaps sometimes when you have no money, it's easy to give away. And when you have more money, you feel like you have more to lose. But there's also a spiritual principle at work here, and that is this. The more resources that we have, the more likely we are to reject faith as a lifestyle. If I have the resources, I will choose to depend on my resources. I will choose to depend on my wealth instead of depending on God. Why, why will I do that? Well, because I'm more comfortable depending on myself. Personally, if I think that I don't need God's provision, I will often choose to see to it myself. Why is that? Well, because even if God provides for me, He might not provide the way I want Him to. As a church, when we do this, our mission becomes about what we can afford with the time and money and resources that we have available to give. And when those resources are small, we become very protective of them. And when they're large, we become very protective of them. You see, we, we all play this game, don't we? Rather than being surrendered, we hold these things very tightly and sort of leak them out, dole them out to Jesus as we see fit. In other words, when we have very little, we tend to keep it for ourselves. And when we have very much, we tend to keep it for ourselves. Kind of like the rich farmer in Luke 12 who has a great harvest, more than he can store. And his solution to the problem, he says, I'll just build bigger barns. I'll tear down the old ones. I'll build bigger barns. And why is he going to do this? Because he stores all of this up. And he says, now I have no need. Now I can rest easy. Now I can be comfortable. But Jesus telling this parable in, in Luke 12, verse 20, he says, but God said to him, now, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And then Jesus says this, This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. Oh, man. Folks, I mean, we know these stories, right? 
and, and we are uncomfortable with these stories. And we're uncomfortable, honestly, me too, because we know that a lot of times our attitude towards time and money are often wrong, often inappropriate. Why is that? We know the truth and sometimes don't live the truth. I think that we are undermined by the fear that Jesus will not be enough. That Jesus will not be our provision, will not be our rest. Or at the very least, that if Jesus is our provision, he won't provide for us as we see fit. He won't provide the comfort that we think we need. And he won't give us the rest that we desire. And so the only way we feel like, the only way I can be certain of having the things I want and I can have the time that I feel like I need for myself is to hold on tightly to that time and money and portion it out to Jesus in a, in a pr proportion that I think is appropriate. In other words, the only way we can get what we need is by living unsurrendered to Christ. And I'm not saying this morning that you can't enjoy prosperity. I, I hope you do. Prosperity of time and money both. It's really a question of whose prosperity is it? See, Jesus says where my treasure is, my heart is. And if my heart is in the things that I own, well, let's just say I cannot give Jesus my life if my heart is included in the deal. Surrender is really about moving from ownership to stewardship. It's the idea that everything I am and everything I have actually belongs to Jesus already, and it's my responsibility to be a good steward of his things. And as a steward, how does Jesus want me to use the resources that he's provided to me? I'm blessed to have them, aren't I? And he's within his rights to ask them of me, isn't he? It's not a question of what I have necessarily. It's the question of what I'm prepared to do with what I have. How will I serve with what I have? How will I put what I have into service for the kingdom of God? How will I fulfill my purpose? How will I build the kingdom? How will I support church and its mission? And we need your support for the mission. And so this morning, let's, let's talk briefly about tithing. Tithing is the practice of giving 10% of gain for the Lord's work. That's literally what it means. It's a tenth. It's a provision of the Mosaic Law. We still use the terminology today. It was originally designed to support the temple and the Levites and the priests who operated the temple. And it was, for most of history, an agrarian practice. In other words, it revolved around harvest time. 
There were three harvests in Israel every year, and at each harvest, as the harvest came in, a tenth of that harvest went to the temple, and it supported the Levites, it supported the priests, and it supported the work of the temple. It was uh, not the only support that the temple, the Levites, and the priests received. They also were granted lands and homes in the uh, tribal uh, areas of the other tribes. Uh, this is the one tribe in Israel that had no territory of their own. It was all provided by the other 11. And so their flocks and their land and the food they ate, literally, came from these tithes. Offerings were distinct from tithes. They go above and beyond them. So here's generally the way that this works. Tithes are taken up as a provision for the temple and for temple work. Offerings were taken up for special needs that arose. All of this is part of the law of Moses, and as if all things that come out of the law of Moses, someone is always quick to point out that we are no longer under the law, and that is true. However, the principle of tithing actually predates the law by about a thousand years. Abraham gave a tithe to the high priest of God, Melchizedek. And so this principle has been in play much longer than the law of Moses. But it's true. There is really no hard and fast rule for Christian giving. Sometimes we wish that there was. It would make our lives a lot easier. But there really isn't. However, when we apply this principle, when we look at the principle, as we need to do with all things of the law, what is the principle behind the law? Why was it set up this way? When we look at the principle, we may find that the principle of tithing challenges our giving more than any rule could. Let's talk about, first of all, what tithing is not. Tithing is not membership dues. It doesn't buy you membership in the church. It doesn't guarantee you salvation or even voting rights within your local church. It doesn't give you the right to demand your way contrary to the mission of Christ simply because you're paying for this. And a lot of people over the years have perceived it as such and have even used their tithe as a sort of vote whenever they disapprove of what leadership is doing. They just withhold their tithe. Tithing is not payment for spiritual goods and services. In all honesty, we sometimes like this uh, cost product model. Because if we're just buying something, it means that after I tithe, all the rest of my money is mine. And I like my money to be mine. And... Using this model, many people have come to the conclusion that the less I use my church, the less I show up, the less I engage in what the church is doing and in ministries that it, it offers, the less money I need to put in because I'm not using those spiritual goods and services. 
tithing, however, is giving back a portion of what God has provided to us. Tithing is meant to support God's work and to provide for the workers in God's work. So, in all honesty, if we withhold our support from Christ's mission, we are not withholding that support from the church or from men. We're withholding it from God. Let's talk about what tithing is. Tithing is participation in the mission of Jesus. This is more than just supporting efforts that I like. You can give to any charity you wish. Tithing is is actually participating in a mission that serves Jesus. Now, the irony of this is that a lot of people have been prepared to support the church as long as the mission of the church is me. As long as the mission is focused on me and what I want and my needs and my perceived needs and you're doing the things that I like you to do, then I'm more than happy to give something to help support that work. And a lot of times when we get into that mindset, we start to transition and say, no, this mission needs to be about Jesus Christ. Suddenly we find people that are unwilling to support it because it's not a mission of me. Now, we work very hard here to make sure that the mission in this place is and will be about Jesus Christ. And so I respect and appreciate that you are here this morning because it says to me, you care about that mission and you want to be a part of that mission. Part of how we participate in that mission is by committing the resources that we have, time and money, to that mission. And in the coming weeks, as we share more with you about where the mission is taking us from here, I hope that you will bear that in mind and and choose to be more supportive of that mission. In this sense, um, tithing is a spiritual discipline. It's, It's more than supporting our favorite things. Tithing is spiritually formative. Paul writes to Timothy, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't say money is the root of all evil. He says the love of money is the root of all evil. When we take these things that we hold precious, when we take these things that we guard so uh, fiercely, like our time and our money, things that could very easily become idols in our life, and we give of them first to God, We destroy their power as idols in our life. This is the spiritual discipline. And in this sense, uh, tithing is from our first fruits. At those three harvests, not only are we expected to give 10% of the harvest, but you're expected to give the best of the harvest, the choice produce. Because otherwise, what would we do? As human beings, we kind of know what we would do. We would give what was left over. Oh, those Levites, they don't expect much. 
a little bit of moldy grain isn't going to hurt anybody. I can't tell you over the years, you know, when, uh, uh, when, uh, when everybody started buying CD players, or, the, or DVD players, rather, everybody started buying DVD players. All the churches started receiving VHS players. Right? Because we get, we get that new DVD player. Ooh, upgrades. And we pull out, pull out that VHS player and go, boy, back in the day, I paid a lot of money for this. Ah, the church could use it. Same thing happened when everybody started buying flat screen TVs. All of a sudden, those big, bulbous, gigantic TV sets start showing up at churches all over the country. I don't want it anymore. It's such a behemoth, but the church could use it. Well, the principle of first fruits is not I give to the Lord what's left over. The principle of the first fruits is I give to the Lord the best of what I have. So, if you wouldn't have it in your home, please don't donate it to us. If it's something you have enjoyed having in your home, okay, maybe. But if it's just junk, if it's on its way out, we probably don't need it either. Tithing comes from first fruits. It's the principle that we give to the Lord our first and our best, not what's left. And if that sounds difficult, it's because of this final principle. Tithing is meant to be a sacrifice. It's meant to be challenging. It's meant to be difficult. And this is a big challenge for us because when we look on back on this principle historically, when we look at the people who observed this principle under Mosaic law, yes, there were wealthy people who were tithing out of their wealth. But there were also a lot of very simple people, very common people, who didn't have a lot of discretionary income. And they're tithing on that income. For a lot of us, in order for a tithe to be a sacrifice, going to have to be something different. You say, well, what are, you, what are you saying, Doug? You're saying I have to give 10% of my gain to the church? I'm saying no. As a matter of fact, in order to make it sacrificial, it might be more than that. It might need to be more than that. You know, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians to the church, he says, have each one give as he's purposed in their, in their hearts. Because the Lord loves a cheerful giver. What's kind of funny about that is that uh, some people have sort of reverse engineered this into a theology that says, I, I only give what I can give cheerfully. Giving is supposed to be a sacrifice. And incidentally, that passage is in regard not to a tithe, but to an offering, a special collection that was being taken up for a specific purpose which the church had volunteered to give. The principle, even in that passage, is to give generously and to learn to do that joyfully. And so we come to passages like this one from Luke 14, a passage that we're going to look at more next week. 
But just chew on this for a minute. Luke 14, verse 33, Jesus says, In the same way, those who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Now, does that mean you have to sell all you have and give it to the poor like the rich young ruler? Not exactly. We never see that commanded in the early church. What we do see is that what you have came from God, what you have still belongs to God, and you need to do with it what God would have you do with it. It's not so much a question of what of my wealth will I give to God, my wealth of time and money will I give to God. It's a question of how much of God's wealth of time and treasure will he allot for me. And so, what am I asking you to do? Well, challenging time for this church. And only more challenging because of the ministry goals that that we're currently establishing for ourselves. And we'll share more with you about some of those dreams in the coming weeks. But I want you to consider, first off, giving more of your income to the church. Just give more of your income. Just take a look and see what it would take. And yes, this is a terrible time to be asking you to give more. But maybe that's the point. I'm asking you, perhaps, to make a decision to live with less so that you can give more. It might be something that you have to give up something you have to surrender, something you have to sacrifice in order to be able to give more to support the mission of the church. It's entirely possible. Most people in America today spend more on internet and television than they spend on charity. More than they spend, more money is spent bringing garbage into our homes than is spent to support the church that tries to counteract all that garbage. We may need to look at our lives. We may need to make some tough decisions. Something that isn't worthy may need to give way so that something more worthy can be supported. Perhaps I'm asking you to make more money so that you can give more money. Not make more money so that I can line my nest better or buy a better car, but make more money solely for the purpose of giving it to the Lord. Or maybe even choose to make less money so that you can afford to serve more. Free up your schedule so that you can give to the Lord out of the other wealth that you have, which is your time. See, I don't have a quota this morning. There's not a dollar amount that I'm trying to reach. What I have is a a discipline that I need to engage and that we all need to engage, and that is to put the Lord first in all things, particularly in the things that we're most reluctant 
forgive him. And when we do that, it's not about meeting a specific goal or a specific need. It's about trusting that when we give to God, God will provide, and whatever we need will be present.